Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say again um, how thankful I am to be here. It's a privilege to um, get to serve you this morning through God's Word. We do love this church and regularly pray for you all um, as well. And we're thankful for a like-minded congregation here in Houston that we can know is preaching the the gospel faithfully and seeking to be a witness to this community uh, faithfully. I've uh, just grown to love uh, Kyle and John and, of course, Larry and the elders here over the years, and uh, it's it's a privilege to be with you. And uh, I pray that the Lord would bless our time together as we look at his word. And so let's go to him in prayer before we look, look together at his word. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather over your word and ask that you would bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we pray that the gospel would be powerful among us, and that we would find refuge and hope in Christ anew. And if there are any among us that don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray this picture that we see in the Old Testament of substitution, of sacrifice, of your grace, would build up your church, particularly this church, Christ our Savior Baptist Church to be grounded and confident in the finished work of Christ on their behalf and built up to serve you and to seek others around this community, to love them well. We pray that you would bring many to come to know you through them. We ask that you would bless our time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. The God of Abraham... Praise is the title of a hymn that was written in 1770, but it has Jewish roots that go back to a confession of faith written by medieval Jewish scholar uh, Moses Mamindus. And centuries later, in 1400, uh, it was turned into a Jewish doxology called the Yigdal. It's widely sung in synagogues to this day. If you fast forward a few centuries further to the year 1770, an opera vocalist named Meyer Lyon was singing the Yigdal in London's great synagogue, Duke's Place. And that's when Thomas Olivers first heard it. Olivers was an orphan at the age of four. And he, he studied shoemaking, but by his own admission, he learned the art of sinning much better. He said he was the worst boy known in his hometown for 30 years. When he was 18, he was kicked out of town. That's saying something. And he wandered down to Bristol, England, where evangelist George Whitfield happened to be preaching from Zechariah 3.2. Is not this a brand plucked out from the fire? Thomas recalled, when that sermon began, I was one of the most abandoned and prolific young men living. And before it ended, I was a new creature. He began a traveling evangelist, a ministry as an evangelist and Christian worker for the rest of his life. 
Then one Sunday in 1770, he heard this Jewish doxology and he, he knew that he needed to finish it. And so he approached the vocalist and acquired the music and adapted the, the doxology into a hymn, the hymn that we have today called The God of Abraham Praise. And it's in John Wesley's uh, 1785 pocket hymn book, complete with scripture references uh, for each line. Listen just to the first stanza. The God of Abraham praise, who reigns enthroned above all, the ancient of eternal days and God of love. Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed, we bow and blessed, bless the sacred name forever blessed. He wrote this little note to a friend, and this note struck me as I was looking at this passage. He said, look at this, as he showed him the doxology. I have, I have rendered it from the Hebrew and given it, as far as I could, a Christian character. And in some ways, I think that sums up the task of Christian, Christian theology. We, we understand the Bible to be one book, one story with one heavenly author, and we've come today to really one of the, the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, this account of Abraham and Isaac. And our goal is to render it from the Hebrew to see what's here before us in Genesis 22, while also trying to see it as part of the one story that God is writing, which is going to crescendo on a different hill with another kind of sacrifice and a greater substitute. And we must go even further to see Abraham's obedience, God's testing, Isaac's trust, God's faithfulness, as Christians, we must see this on this side of the cross. As we think about our own risks and suffering and unknown futures and idols in our own hearts and God's gracious and purifying testing. And so we're faced with our own walks up that mountain, our own letting go of what is precious to us in this constant giving way to what is most precious. So we're faced with Isaac's question there in verse 7, often in our own lives. I see the wood, I see the fire and the knife. Where is the lamb? And my prayer is that God would make us, this church, our children, our grandchildren, into the kind of people that say with Abraham in verse 8, God will provide. And we'd be a people who would sing the God of Abraham praise. So the main point of this passage is that God will provide. And you can put that in any tense that you like. God has provided, God will provide, but the meaning is the same. The point is the same. His provision is not in question. The question that comes to us this morning will, is this, will we place our soul and complete trust in that gracious provision? Abraham's life is a story about learning to trust God. And it crescendos here in this beautiful and powerful passage. And so I want to just give you three pegs to hang this text on as we go through the, the text. We won't go through the whole chapter. We'll go through most of it. And I'll spend most of my time here at the beginning at the first point. The first peg is that the Lord tests. The Lord tests. And we see that in verses 1 to 10. The Lord tests. Secondly, we'll see that the Lord provides. The Lord provides in verses 11 to 14. And then finally, the Lord promises. Verses 15 to 19. The Lord tests. The Lord provides. 
and the Lord promises. The God of Abraham prays, who was and is the same and evermore shall be, eternal Father, great I am, we worship Thee. That's what we're after, worship of the providing God. So first let's consider that the Lord tests. Number one, the Lord tests. Look with me there at verse one of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Right off the bat, the reader, you and I, were clear about what's happening. This is, this is testing. Abraham does not have this information. That's what they, the way it is in real life, isn't it? We don't get that alarm that goes. But, but as the reader, we understand. And, and as one author put it, in some ways, this preface acts like a cushion as we read the story. Okay, okay, this is a test. Uh, and it might also serve as an apologetic to say that, that Yahweh really wouldn't call for human sacrifice, which would be a common practice in Abraham's day. In fact, it's likely Abraham himself would have, would have at least seen this done, if not practice it, practice it his, himself in his own kind of pagan moon-worshiping days. Nevertheless, this, this test likely pushes the limits of, of anything he had ever thought or anything that he'd be called to give up. And I just think that's instructive for us as a posture in our own hearts as we come to this passage, that we would be prepared for something that we never thought we would have to do a place we never thought we'd be. These first 10 verses take place over a period of a few days, which which must have seemed like centuries for Abraham. Even as the reader, we're just emotionally drained by the middle of the passage. Uh, There in verse 1, that phrase, after these things, is just a reference to what's gone before uh, in in the the chronicle here uh, in Genesis, namely, particularly, the birth of, of Isaac, after the long kind of quarter of a century wait, 25 years for the promise of God to come through. And then more recently, the departure, the departure of Ishmael and, and Hagar there in chapter 21. And there's a lot of, of drama and interesting turns and, and things that we won't have time to go into. But most scholars believe and take Isaac to be at least a mid-teenager here in this passage or even older given the way that this passage parallels chapter 21 and the fact that Isaac is going to be asked to carry this this heavy wood up the mountain, as we're going to see, and other factors. And then then Abraham's reply when he says, here I am, is just repeated multiple times in the passage, just emphasizing his availability and submission to the Lord. And so what Abraham hears next is nothing less than shocking. There in verse 2, he said, God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It would be really shocking on its face, wouldn't it? To try to get our minds around these words. But I think especially given this journey that Abraham has been on for these past 25 years and just just hearing these words from God would have a particular weight, a shock to them. Over and over, God had promised 
him, had promised Abraham great descendants, and then specifically a son named Isaac, through whom his descendants would be named. And now, God, you're saying, I'm to sacrifice this son, to kill this son. No one makes it alive out of a burnt offering. The animal's throat was slit, it was dismembered. The whole animal was then burned to nothing on the altar. That's what God is saying. I wonder if you've come to a place in your own life when, when things, whether circumstances, your walk with God, something in the church, just don't make sense. You come to a place, you thought you were tracking where God was going, you thought you were, you were in line with what things were, the direction your life was headed, and then one day something completely, abruptly, jarringly changes, and you don't understand. You don't understand what God is doing. You have no idea what, what, what direction he's going. You can't predict what's going to happen next. That's where, that's where Abraham is. Just think about the way that God describes Isaac in verse 2 as your son, your only son. I think that's interesting. After having just lost Ishmael, Isaac is all that Abraham has left. He calls his name Isaac, which means he laughs, which recalls the whole saga of waiting on God and and the laughter of Sarah and the laughter of Abraham at the promises of God. And then God coming through your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Abraham's not a robot. He's a father. He's a dad. He loved Ishmael and he loves Isaac. And now he's faced with losing both his his natural, so to speak, and his supernatural seed in this pursuit to follow God. This may shed some light on just the nature of the, the kind of testing that's going on here. Tim Keller calls this Abraham's second call. He says his first was in chapter 12. This is his second. This is what Keller writes. He says, this was the ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham. As God's call makes clear, he does not refer to the boy as just Isaac, but as your son, your only son, whom you love. So Abraham's affection had become adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was shifting. God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. And so Abraham is blessed by God, but his covenant relationship with God is more important than the blessings he receives, even his own son. Beloved, we must desire God himself, not just his gifts. What a lesson for us. We appreciate the gifts, but because they help us to know and love the giver all the more. Even gifts like forgiveness of sins and deliverance from eternal wrath, a new life, all the blessings that come with it. And of course, the blessings that we experience and enjoy here on earth. I wonder if you have an Isaac in your life that you, if you were honest with yourself, would say, I, yeah, I couldn't live without that if it were taken from me. I'm banking everything on that. When that's going well, I'm doing well. When it's up, I'm up. But when that's down, I'm down. Just as a pastor, I I know that it's a natural inclination for me to have that connection with church attendance. 
oh, it was a great day because we had so much attendance or I'm in a bad mood because somehow my identity is related to how many people attend or how my sons play in baseball. I notice my, my, my mood goes up and down whether they strike out or, 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 or not. Is there anything that you're banking on? Anything that's, that, that you're, you're, you're giving that reserved place only for God to? This is Abraham's call. And it's, it's very similar to what he heard in chapter 12. Go to the land. And here it's go, go, go to Moriah, to the mountain that I will show you. And of course, Mount Moriah is later identified in Jerusalem and particularly at the site of the temple. And which, of course, carries all of the theological freight of sacrifice. And there will be a new name for that land at the end of the story. And so with this shocking command, without, without all the details, and presumably without any objection from Abraham, look at verse 3. We read what happens. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And if you go back and look at chapter 21, you'll see a lot of just parallels there with the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, he's also up early in the morning there after he's, he's going to be sending uh, Ishmael away, making preparations for another loss of another son. Just, you, just we need to put ourselves there, I think, emotionally where Abraham would be. How could he do this? Uh, Gordon Wenham, uh, a scholar, points out the strange order that we see here in verse 3 of this business. First, he, Abraham saddles the donkey. Then he takes the two men and his son. And then he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. It doesn't seem like the order that I would have done things. It's as if he's just scatterbrained and stressed and doing one thing after the other, perhaps. And you get this picture of Isaac and these two other men just standing there. He's saddled, donkeys are saddled, and, and they're watching him, just watching him chop the wood. Perhaps he's just saving the most difficult task for last, we don't know. But once he's done, the group leaves together to go where God had told him. And we can assume that there's some direction given uh, in the interaction between Abraham and God before verse 4. But, but we get to verse 4. And we read, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And so in the Bible, three days often communicates a significance or, or, or time for something to be prepared, that, that something important is being prepared. And so on the third day, Abraham is shown the mountain, in particular the spot um, that he's to go and lifts up his eyes and sees it. And from this point on, he and Isaac are going to go it alone. So verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. As much as we'd like to jump into Abraham's head at this point uh, and know exactly what he's thinking, we, we can't do that. Um, when he says, I and the boy will go over to worship and we will come back to you. Uh, there are a few options as we, as we think about this. The, the first is that Abraham is just kind of keeping this on the down low. He doesn't want to make it really clear to everyone what's going on. I don't know what his conversation with Sarah was like that morning. Hey, we're going to go out and we're going to do some things. We're going to go hunting. I don't know what he told her. Um, but, but here in front of Isaac and the men, maybe he's just trying to keep it, keep it, kind of keep it quiet. Um, he doesn't know what's going to happen, so he doesn't want to raise suspicion. Another option is that he, he doesn't plan to go through with it and just plans to be 
disobedient and to come back. Um, that last option, or the last option, is that uh, this rep- really represents just an affirmation of faith on his part. Faith in God's promise. That whatever happens, he knows that God's word will stand. And we know that the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 sees it this way, or particularly just highlights Abraham's faith in chapter 11, verse 19, when it says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Abraham just continues to obey the word of the Lord in this very difficult time of testing. And so verse 6 We read this, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, so they went, both of them together. It was just a powerful and weighty moment. The irony really is right now that the wood is on his back. In a very short time, his back is going to be laying on the wood It is impossible not to see overtones here of another sacrificial son carrying the wood on his back that would be used in his execution. And I say impossible, it may sound like a strong word, but but even in the Jewish Midrash, which is this ancient commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, we, we read this, quote, Isaac with the wood on his back is like a condemned man carrying his own cross. A non-Christian Jewish rabbi wrote that. So the father and son walked together to this place of sacrifice. It's just like someone is punching you in the gut as you read this and picture it. And then to go and think of another father and son making that journey together. The son carrying the wood, the father with the fire and knife for the offering. It feels like, it seems like this journey is mostly silent except for what we see in this interaction in verses 7 and 8. So look there. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And I think here, again, Isaac's question shows a compliant heart and really a disposition to trust his father. It's an innocent question. And we can take Abraham's answer as either a prayer or a prophecy. Uh, Again, we can't get into his heart and his his mind. I don't think we should read this as God will provide an offering, colon, i.e., my son, I don't think the language bears out that translation. He's simply, he's simply telling his son that what he knows to be true at this moment, God will provide. And he has up to this point, he has no reason to believe that he's not going to do it now. Even if that means that Isaac is put to death, God will raise him. God will come through, son. I want you to listen to this, this uh, quote from John Calvin, and it, it's striking. Calvin, just a, a great, um, with a wonderful, just pastoral heart. He says, this example is for our imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. 
We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. I love that. Are you going through an experience of perplexity in God's providence? It honors the Lord when we acquiesce, when we surrender, when we trust him with the details, with the result. We honor God when we trust him and we don't know what's going to happen. It's as if they go on in silence together after this conversation. Brings us to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And now things in the story begin to move quickly. The altar is built. Isaac is bound, most likely his hands and feet, and he's placed on the wood. Normally burnt offerings would work differently, but this is not a normal situation. Incidentally, we don't have a lot in Genesis about Isaac. There are these swaths of material about many of the patriarchs. Not so with Isaac. He comes off in some ways as kind of a passive character in a lot of the story. But here, I think Moses is highlighting something for us to learn about Isaac, particularly his obedience and trust in his father as a young man, in his father and in his father's God. He doesn't have to be a detective to figure out something fishy is going on here. He's, he's, he's carrying the wood nonetheless, even after Abraham's kind of non-answer to his question about the lamb. And now it's crystal clear what's happening. He's being bound up and put on to be the offering himself. And yet he allows his aged father to bind him hand and foot. I was thinking about this last night and my two of my sons were standing in the kitchen I have a 16 year old son and a 19 year old son and I'm just kind of looking at them thinking okay maybe this is about the age of Isaac at this point I'm thinking deep down like I know I could take them I can still take up these guys they they got nothing on me but but really I know that's not true and so I'm trying to imagine what it'd be like to against their will tie them up and place them on this 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 stack of wood that would be no easy task unless they were totally on board completely and totally willing and I think that's the picture we see here of Isaac he goes willingly he's a willing sacrifice that does not struggle does not object he is silent and and Isaiah's words just just jump off the page to us in Isaiah 53:7. He was oppressed of the suffering servant. He was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. Tradition says that that Jews believe that the temple sacrifices were accepted not because of the the, the animal itself but on the merits of Isaac. His obedience was recalled when sacrifices were made to place the weight of his willingness to suffer more than just this animal sacrifice. Oh, they were so close. So close. And don't you see it? Jesus said, no one takes my life. I I lay it down on my own accord. Isaac is submissive to God's will here, even to death. Look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter 
his son. There's no hint from the text that Abraham is bluffing or having second thoughts. He is fully obedient even in this puzzling, mysterious situation. If you're here this morning as a Christian, hopefully you can see and understand this passage points to the provision of God for us in Christ. So none of us has a perfect faith. It's not about us passing all the tests. And if we pass the test, like Indiana Jones, then we will ultimately be, be made right and, and saved. No, by nature we are sinners, meaning that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But in Christ we have been provided for, ultimately, and have newness of life and hope in God. But here's the thing. Our faith in Christ cannot merely be an intellectual assent. Our Christianity must involve a confession of faith in Christ. It must be from the mind and the heart. But genuine faith is always going to be borne out in our actions. And so the testing of Abraham is instructive for us as we think about our own faith and the reality that the Lord tests. He does not tempt us to sin, but he tests to reveal what's there or not there to teach us. Think about the way that he speaks to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8. He says, And you shall remember the whole way of the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Or in the parable of the soils that was even mentioned earlier in our prayer in Luke 8. And the ones that the seed would fall on the rock are those when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Or listen to what James says in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Putting our our sights on the end of the testing, not just the the middle of it, while we're in the middle of it. Or even James is more of an explicit commentator on our passage before us in James 2.21, when he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or we would say faith that is alone. Abraham's faith is being revealed. So, brother, sister, God is good. God is good. And he does good. And when he tests us, it is always for our good. And we don't get the heads up that comes on, used to come on the radio anyway. This is a test of the emergency whatever system. That doesn't come through when we go through these difficult situations. Like we read here in, in Genesis. But it's why we have the story. One reason why we have the story. Beloved, trust the Lord. When you're going through these difficult situations, God is not leaving you or angry with you or punishing you. He loves you, and He will open a way for you. Trust Him, because the second thing that we'll mention, the second peg, the tester is also the provider. So that's number two. 
The tester is the provider, or the Lord provides. The Lord provides. So we left off here a little bit of a cliffhanger. Verse 10, Abraham is gripping the knife, about to slaughter his son, his only son that he loved. And it, it's at this moment that the Lord intervenes. And so look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So here again, at the very moment of truth, we find Abraham in a posture of obedience. Here I am. These had to be the sweetest words that he's ever heard from heaven. The Lord, the Lord says through the angel, now he knows that Abraham truly loves him because he doesn't withhold even his own son. It's not as though he didn't know before, but he knows in the sense that it has been demonstrated. Just as it was with Job. We're told at the very beginning of the book of Job, this man fears God. But Satan says he only loves you for what he has, for the gifts. Take those possessions away. Take the family away. Take the prosperity away. He will curse you. And the rest of the story is one dramatic and trying, testing and proving that Job actually does fear God and loves the giver more than the gifts. And that's what Abraham is proving here. And so let me just invite you to switch this logic. And we have this wonderful picture here. And we've been talking some about, about testing with us, but I just want to turn it around that what we see there in verse 12 and think about the way that Paul kind of sees this in Romans chapter 8. As we think not about our own love for God, but about God's great love for us. Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And of course, the passage that we read earlier, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Both at Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration, we hear this voice from heaven again saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see how much of the, the, the language we have in the New Testament to express the gospel comes from Genesis 22? And especially the language of substitution. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God will provide for himself a lamb. Oh, that word instead is so important. Instead of Isaac, another would take his place. The nature of the, the burnt offering was twofold. First, the one, one offering is symbolically giving his whole self to the Lord. So the offering is consumed. And secondly, the animal's death is like an atonement or a covering for sin. And so this is, a, this is just a pattern or a type that's repeated throughout the scriptures. And when we, when we think about, so it's a type, or we think about typology, we think about uh, things that happen in one place in the Bible historically and happen in another place in the Bible. 
So historical correspondence. But then the importance of those events ramps up. So there's an escalation of importance. And so we see this happen over and over again. So later in Exodus, we'll see the Lord spare every firstborn son in Israel through the killing of a Passover lamb without spot or blemish. And then after they are released from captivity, they too are going to go on a three-day journey to worship the Lord on a mountain. And God is going to appear to them and give them the law and a promised blessing to those that would obey. And every Israelite father is then going to redeem his firstborn son with an animal substitute. Exodus 13, 12, and 13. So you see that kind of the birth of the sacrificial system happening, growing out of this, this picture. All of this pointing to a greater and more sufficient sacrifice, a suffering substitute. And just let these words wash over you this morning. Again from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin's of the world. Mark 10, 45, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then on the third day, as we said, preparing for something important, the disciples lifted up their eyes and see the son of man alive, resurrected from the grave. The father receives back his son and exalts him. That son that Paul says was obedient even to the point of death and was later exalted. That one day every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The tester is also the provider. Jehovah Jireh. Imagine how how Abraham and Isaac's heart were soaring in, in worship. Friends, how deep and wide is the love of God for us? How much has he done for us? If God did not spare his own son, what will he withhold from us? He may test us. He may discipline us, but he will never leave us. He will always provide for us. This is our gospel hope. And friend, if you're here and you don't know that gospel hope, let me invite you to turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and put your trust in Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who lived a life of of sinless perfection and obedience, and willingly laid his life down on the cross to atone for our sins. And three days later rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. That if you would respond to that truth by repenting of your sins, turning from your sins, and putting your faith and trust in Jesus, you would be saved. We'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, after our time together. Friends, we know that God keeps His promises. And here we have one example. Why? Because He swears that He will do it. And He swears an oath by himself. by himself, And that's the last peg, briefly, that I'm going to mention uh, this morning. Number three, the Lord promises. 
And here we have another kind of reiteration of the promises of God associated with the Abrahamic covenant that you can trace back to chapter 12. Uh, You find the call of Abraham and the promise back in chapter 12. You have a covenant ceremony that happens in chapter 15. You have the seal of that confirmation through circumcision in chapter 17. And now we see a covenant oath in chapter 22. I think you could see that like a a marriage. There's there's an engagement. There's a a wedding ceremony. There are rings that are exchanged, the symbol of the the union and vows that are ultimately that solidify the union. And that's a bit of what we see in Genesis, the the, the Abrahamic covenant progresses. Uh, Look in verse 15 with me. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So this oath is like the culmination of all the promises previously. It's particularly powerful because it's sealed with an oath on the part of God himself. That's what it says there in verse 16. By myself I have sworn. You all have been studying the book of Hebrews, and you know that the author of Hebrews comments on this in chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, listen to this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And beloved, that is, that is my prayer for you this morning, as I've thought about you this week, that you would have that encouragement as someone who's flying to the cross for refuge, strong encouragement to hold fast to the promises because God is God and he has sworn by himself. We could put our roots down deep. And God even here is drawing attention to Abraham's obedience because he says, you have obeyed my voice. The nations will be blessed through your descendants. Ultimately, we know that is going to be through Christ and through the church. The nations will ultimately be blessed. Jesus building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ our Savior, Baptist Church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The the gates symbolize the city's security and, and power. Nothing will overcome the church, not even the gates of hell itself. God says so. He swears with an oath and he does not lie. And so our response ought to be praise. The God of Abraham, praise. He by himself has sworn. We on his oath depend. We shall on eagles' wings be born. To heaven ascend. We shall behold his face. We shall his power adore and sing the wonders of his grace forevermore. Amen? Amen. Friend, where in your life is God asking you to trust God more? Where in your your life? And I know that's not a small thing for a visiting pastor to say. As I think about my own congregation, I know that there are people right now struggling with, with 
crippling grief and marriages that are hurting and and in their family children are rebelling finances are going down the toilet they're struggling with besetting sins where is god asking you to trust him even if you don't understand where circumstances are pointing you right now where is he asking you to trust him is there any gift in your life that you would honestly assess and say, this gift has now risen to the point where it's clouding my view of the giver? Are you doubting God's provision for you in some area of your life? I think it's instructive to remember that right after God tested the children of Israel in the wilderness, He fed them. Deuteronomy 8.3, And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The tester is the provider. Sometimes it's unexpected testing and unexpected provision, but he provides. And his promises are worth trusting in, every word. D.L. Moody was leading a series of evangelistic meetings in the late 1800s, along with uh, Daniel Towner, who was leading the music. And one night a young man stood up after the message. Maybe you can relate to this young guy. He's hearing all this wonderful truth being spoken. And he he says this, I'm not quite sure what to do in my life, but I am going to simply trust and I'm going to obey. And those words led to that hymn, trust and obey. But never, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Beloved, that's the call from Genesis 22 to say, here I am to the one that died and rose from the grave. Here I am to trust and to obey. Let's pray. Father, I know It's one thing to hear these things preached and taught. I know it's one thing to preach and teach them and another thing to believe them and another thing thing to to step out uh, a foot of obedience when we're in pain and we're disillusioned with our circumstances. And so we pray that you would, in your kindness, As a loving Father, point us, lift up our eyes to the cross. Lift up our eyes to the place where we see our Savior, where all doubts of your love for us, all doubts of your provision for us are erased. And that we would find hope. We would find a place, an anchor for our lives. Lord, I pray for this sweet congregation. I pray that you would encourage them and bless them as they continue to seek to just faithfully serve you in this area. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them as they go through suffering. Help them to model, Lord, what true faith is, not rooted in any circumstance or anything outside of the wonderful truth that we've seen in your passage. Lord, help us to trust and to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.